There's three level go-kart track. Uh, it's really pretty amazing. And throwing axes too, which we did not let the 12 year olds do. They wanted to, they saw the sign. They were like, oh, we're going to throw axes. And I'm like, no, we're not. Anyway, um, so that has very little to do with our wonderful guest today. <laughs> Except seamless. she has kids. And so this, this all awaits her. Katie Labunko, so glad that you're here. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. For folks who don't know Katie, one of the fascinating things that we'll dig into in a little bit is I remember when you came, you know, I was here eight months pre-COVID. And so it was not that many Sundays, really, when, when it all comes down to it, that we were there in person. But I remember you coming and I remember getting to know your story and that you had been at the church years and years and years before and and we're just now coming back and I find that so fascinating and I'm excited to to dig into it and you just joined the worship committee which is also really exciting so 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 glad you're here um but let's start there let's start with as we've done with lots of folks sort of your journey into the church and then back so one of the things that um we recently had asked folks in our listening circles which the committee on ministry hosts every year was sort of what you were looking for when you first came to the church and what you were looking for now. And, and so for you, how is it, because you were a youth, right? So how was it that you found the church then? And then what brought about your return? Um, yeah, so I did, my whole family joined the church when I was seven, I think, and my sister was one and my parents were redacted. Um, but so my whole family joined the church at that point and it didn't really stick for any of them. I think my parents sort of intermittently went for a couple of years and then kind of stopped. Um, but I continued going not super, super regularly. Um, but all through high school, I, I came to the youth group. Um, and you know, it wasn't until I sort of went to college that I kind of drifted away, um, the, the first time around. And then I sort of came back a, a couple of years ago when my son Leo was uh, about 11 months old. He's now three and a half. Um, and yeah, I think, I think having kids made me sort of remember this great community. Um, and I was lucky enough to still be within driving distance. And I wanted my kids to experience some of that. Um, so when I was, I think when I was a kid, um, when I think back on my sort of spiritual and religious life of childhood and adolescence, I think in some ways I, I, I remember really kind of wanting to be uh, religious and like feeling that there was a lot of comfort in, in faith. And I think I also, so I think that I both sort of craved the um, comfort of, you know, feeling that there was an afterlife and, you know, that there's a God that, that loves you and everything. And, um, I think I also had some sort of, uh, I think I read about Pascal's wager in high school and I was like, yeah, that Pascal guy has a really good point. I better, I better not risk this. Um, for, for anyone who's unfamiliar, Pascal's wager is, uh, 
sort of the idea, Pascal was uh, a mathematician who was also a Christian. And um, he said that anyone should, any rational person should choose to be Christian because if you're an atheist and you're right, then congratulations, you're dead at the end. Um, And if you're wrong, then you get like an eternity of suffering. Whereas if you're a Christian and you're wrong, like congratulations, you're dead. And if you're right, then you get an eternity of paradise. So no matter what the odds are, even if it's like a million to one that the atheist is right and the Christian is wrong, um, it's still logically better to be a Christian. This is of course, assuming a world where like fire and brimstone Christianity and atheism are your only two options, um, which I don't think I quite cottoned on to at at that point in my life. I love that. I've always felt too, we have, I have a Mormon branch to my family and part of the Mormon um, process, my aunt was a door doorstep conversion. You know, Mormons were walking around going door to door and she was in a time of life where she was really ready for something. And anyway, Um, it's been a wonderful part of her life and she's done, you know, mission trips all over the world and all of her kids and everybody really just dove all the way in. But part of your becoming Mormon is you write down everybody's name, who you love and care for in in this book. And then we, we end up going, so says the theology, we end up going to heaven forever with all the other Mormons and people that the Mormons love. My grandfather, who was a deep, deep, deep Methodist, um, really committed church person, he told his daughter in no uncertain terms that she was not to write his name or his mother's name, who was also deep, deep, deep Methodist into the same church, um, which is kind of fascinating that those are the only two people that <laughs> he yeah. was really wanted to make sure were there, which is a story for another time. But I've always thought the same thing. Like, you know, who knows? Fundamentally, fundamentally, it, really anything could be true right? Like there's some theologies that really resonate for me and ring true. And, you know, who knows, like maybe after I die, I wake up and there's a whole bunch of Mormons and they, you know, it's like, pass me a heart. But like, if that's the situation, like, okay, (laughs) here we are. I have a hunch that that's probably not the case, but um, I'm right there with you and Pascal or with teenage you. So that's part of why you were there then. (laughs) Yeah. So I think um, one of sort of the challenges of like late teenagerhood for me was, um, sort of coming to, I I actually really tried. I remember, um, I remember when I was 17, I made a new year's resolution that I was going to pray every night, like no matter what I was going to pray every night. And I did that for a year. Um, every night for a year. Yes. Uh, and then I went to, um, Sweden when I was 18 and, um, I ended up joining a quite evangelical church and attending it twice a week for church and, um, Bible study. And, uh, I, I was pretty upfront about, you know, having doubts and everything, but everyone I was interacting with was really, um, you know, quite religious. And I read a lot of, um, particularly Christian apologism at that point, which is sort of Christian authors, C.S. Lewis being the most famous among them who sort of try to make similar to Pascal, try to make a bunch of, um, sort of logical arguments for Christianity. Um, and, I don't, it just none of it ever quite resonated with me, no matter mm. how much I wanted it to. So I think that my coming of age in my late teens and early twenties was my sort of just coming to the conclusion that um, I personally am an atheist, and I think I've kind of come to terms with that. I, at this point in my life, would say with 
a fairly high degree of certainty that uh, if, or not certainty, but that I personally do not believe in any uh, greater power. So it was kind of interesting coming back to the church um, with, you know, I think less in a quest for divinity and more in a quest for um, community and uh, a moral framework and uh, personal meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the, I had the most fascinating conversation. I just did this memorial service. Gosh, I guess it was yesterday, um, and and I was talking to the husband of the childhood friend of mine, and he was like, he was like, you know, and this was apropos of nothing. I mean, he knows he knows me. He knows I'm a I'm a minister. Um, they used to be Christmas and Easter people at my last congregation because it was close enough. Um, but uh, but he's he said he's like you know people, I just, I'm just not religious. And I was like, that's all right. Like, you know, I wasn't true. <laughs> I didn't bring it up at all. Like, you know, he's like, but you know, I'm not even spiritual. <laughs> and Cause often people say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Like they're just like, Ugh. but this was the first time he just said, you know, I'm, I'm really neither. And his wife, my old, old friend from childhood, she's like, so you're not like curious at all? Like you don't wonder about life or anything? And he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I got a lot going on. <laughs> Which I thought was fascinating. And then we were talking about it though. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, I think, so the, that theological questioning is certainly one piece of it. I was like, but like you were saying, Katie, I think I was like, you know, and I think a lot of people are are looking for community and a lot of people looking at this world right now and and you know granted this should come with a caveat that I get, be a little preacherly but but this world this moment right that we're sharing is so bananas that to be able to take it all in and then find ways to have a meaningful effect and help you know serve and change the world um that that's another piece of of what we do and <laughs> it was like He's like, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> That's this funny. That's what my husband is like. It's, Which was great. it's really funny because he's come yeah. to church like once or twice with me. Um, I think out of solidarity, but he just right. is like supportive, but not super interested. And he, he has asked me many times, he's like, Do you want me to go with you? And I'm like, no, it's fine. If you want a Sunday morning without the kids, like right. Have well, at it. <laughs> the other so so you then in addition to leo you had your second son during the pandemic right that's right actually um i found out i was pregnant like a week or two into the (laughs) the pandemic so um it was uh yeah my pregnancy was like very wrapped up in in the pandemic it was actually in some ways worked out really well because I was feeling pretty sick and exhausted, but I was able to work from home. Um, and I think that the fact that it was my second pregnancy meant that I was a lot less anxious about it than I would have otherwise been. So I kind of knew right. what was sort of normal for me and what wasn't. Um, and we were really lucky that we were incredibly low risk. Um, Beatty and I were both working from home and my mother-in-law was looking after Leo. So it was like kind of the four of us in a bubble and was it and we should say and and what's your second son's name who's so adorable oh felix baby felix yes (laughs) we do still call him baby felix even though he's like just a guy now 
Oh yeah. I mean, he's, no, my, my <laughs> he's like one and a half, but he's like walking around with his hands in his pockets, like right. smoking my a babies. cigarette. And we're like, baby Felix. <laughs> one day you'll be you'll be you'll be uh showing his partners photos of him when he was a baby and you'll be playing him this podcast of like <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. called baby Felix. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one actually this is a totally unsolicited piece of advice for any parents or prospective parents out there. But one of the things that I'm really happy I did um, with both Leo and Felix was before they were born, I set them up an email address and um, I email them every so often. I'll send them like just pictures of what's going on and like, you know, pictures of themselves and tell them like whatever new cute stuff they're doing. And it occurred to me, I can send them both a link to this podcast. I will send baby Felix a link to this podcast. So Katie, can I ask you a question? When you, I'm interested when you, something that might resonate with people or people might want to know more about is when you say that one of the things that's drawn you back to First Church is personal meaning. Can you, can you say what that, what, that, what that is for you? Like what is personal meaning? I think that's something that sort of bothered me um, throughout my 20s. Um, so I went to um, MIT and I was like surrounded by like people who are super, um, it, MIT is sort of an interesting place. This is my experience. Perhaps not everyone's mileage is the same there, but like, I loved it by the way. I had a great time, mm. but, um, intelligence, particularly, um, like scientific or mathematical intelligence is just absolutely the best trait a person can have. And everything else is like way, 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 way less important the amount that, um, you know, interpersonal or uh, verbal intelligence was devalued there was, now that I've sort of been in the real world for a while, was pretty messed up and strange. Mm. Um, and, you know, then I became a software engineer, um, also in a, you know, really, you know, technically focused community. And I think I began to feel, especially when Leo was born, um, I felt that the groups I was in, you know, both, you know, academically and professionally, um, what was valued above all else was not necessarily what's that important at the end of the day. Like, I don't know if my kids were chess prodigies, that'd be pretty nifty. And that would like get them a lot of social cachet at MIT, but I'd rather they just, not be jerks <laughs> and I'd rather they be happy and, yeah. um, you know, have fulfilling relationships. And, uh, I think that, you know, this isn't true necessarily among my, you know, intimate friends and family, but I felt that sort of the, the broader social circles I was in, you know, those things weren't really valued. And I, um, mm. and, and, you know, in school there's, you know, all this teaching for academic excellence and everything. And I, I think that there are, um, I wanted to have a source of meaning and searching for truth that is not just around um, academics and particularly mm. like technical um, areas mm. for, uh, yeah, for, for my kids to grow up in and, um, you know, outside of my family as well, especially because my husband and I are both um, kind of like that, maybe more than <laughs> I would like us to be. So I thought that, um, I don't know, I, I wanted to have a community whose whole purpose is sort of to, to lead me and my 
kids to be better people um, mm. instead of like mm. smarter mm. people or more successful people. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that wasn't sense. particularly eloquent, but <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. It really is. Yeah. Somebody was um, at church a couple of weeks ago, our uh, Joe Murphy, who's the executive director of UMass Action was preaching and she quoted somebody who basically said that in a world of distraction, that to feel is a revolutionary act. And I think to me, that's just kept sticking with me and resonating over and over in my mind. And it's like, this world is so bent on, you know, both pushing us uh, and then pushing us to achieve more and more and do more and more and valuing things. And, but to be able to actually kind of slow down, to be able to be reflective within it, to be able to seek meaning, like you're saying, is, is both takes, takes support and takes a group of people who are also sort of thinking similarly and striving similarly. Um, but it's amazing. You know, I think of the pressures on families right now. I think of the pressures on just everybody. Um, and so much that we just take for granted, you know, so much that um, like with technology, even. I mean, the fact that, you know, we're doing more and more all the time, that we're more accessible, that we're just always doing so many things all at once, and then being able to really kind of actually pay attention mm. is sometimes, you know, uh, a, a challenge. It's sometimes Absolutely. A yeah, I sometimes feel like, um, you know, the whole academic to professional um, track, at least the one that I went on, sort of felt like or feels like a treadmill at times. And like, right. you know, it's, it's easy to get really focused on that and be like, ah, I should make my treadmill go faster and faster and look around and be like, yeah, my right. treadmill's going pretty fast, but yeah. then maybe you don't need to be on the treadmill right. <laughs> or at least not all the time. Like maybe how fast your treadmill is going isn't. So a word that's important, important to thing. me, yeah, this is really resonating with me. A word, a word that's important to me is the word sanctuary which of course mm. names a certain physical space in our in our building but it, and and a, and a sacred space but it also for me it names an idea of what UU is about and i think in it you know what what sacred spaces in many many religions are in, are partly about which is which is creating something which is a, a retreat from um the world in a certain sense and a restoration to the world in another sense you know, there's so much in our society is, as you've been saying, kind of molding us uh, into into career, into competitiveness, into things that we're supposed to be in order to justify our existence to ourselves. But 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 those things are, some, are not really intrinsically valuable, right? They they could just they just become this kind of career hamster wheel or self worth hamster wheel or success hamster wheel, and then and then we sort of come back to our sacred space and our sacred community. And um, it's a it's a it's a return to to reality. It's a return to the to 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 what our lives are really about. And that's that's a a sanctuary from all of the noise and the pressure and the rhetoric and the stress and 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 all of that. Um, but it's 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 not escapism, right? It's also a return to what we really are, what our community really is, what really matters. And that that's an idea. That's it's sort of it's a sort of it's, that's an idea that really matters to me, and I and I, and, I, and and that's in part what what brought me to UU, having grown up in a in a in a 
in a in an atheist household in a household that that, that uh, you know for me church was just was just there going to go, joining my school choir and singing in 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 church spaces which was absolutely lovely um but i what i sort of missed out on was was having a sanctuary i think and and this idea of sanctuary because become important to me um that, that's my own way of putting it so a lot of people have their own have their own ways of putting that 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 idea i think yeah, it's beautiful. I love that the idea of a sanctuary. Yeah. I think that's partly what I've seen too over and over again as people come back into the physical space of the sanctuary. You know, as people come back into the building and people see one another and come back and participate in live and in-person worship, there's just this whole other, I mean, you think about it, that's like on the very most basic level, that's an hour that people aren't looking at their phones. Yeah. Most right. Yeah. Right? Most like, <laughs> which, is, which is really different than a lot of the rest of our lives. Or I think of like Sandy Island when we have, mm. um, which I know that you've, you guys have, have come to and, and that kind of connection and that kind of place and that kind of, you know, that kind of quality of, of community and just being in that sort of time outside of time, it just makes, it just makes such a, such a big difference. Slightly off topic, but Leo actually joined me in the, for the entire service yesterday. Oh, I saw, yeah. 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 He, for some reason he didn't want to go play. He was like, nope, I want to stay in the service. I want to hang out with you. Um, and I was expecting that we'd end up leaving, you know, five minutes in to bring him down to the nursery, but he was, he was pretty good. He was a little wiggly, but, um, <laughs> I don't know. There was, there was something like really nice about having him there. I don't think he got that much of it, but he liked the singing and, and I don't know. It was, it was, um, it was really nice in this, yeah. In the space of sanctuary yeah. surrounded by this community, um, oh, good. to have Leo there for that. I always like to say when, when kids are wiggly in church, that that sound is the sound of the church, not dying. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> there, there are plenty of places where it's real quiet <laughs> and you can really dial it because there's like very few people there. And I think that's one of the things I've loved about the outdoor services too, is having you know kids rambling around and, um, yeah, I love no, that it's, too. It's always been one of my other people's kids in worship is my favorite. I get a little grumpy with my own, but like I love other <laughs> people's children. I mean, this is a, this is a this is a bigger topic, so we we, we don't have time to go into big in a big way. But like, I love the idea of of uh, what's it called, feral children at church? Is that the phrase? <laughs> I came across that phrase in a wonderful <laughs> UU World article I read a few years ago, and it's and it's like how we we want to create a church space like yeah. an environment in which the kids will just like be running around and it'll be their space, you know? Oh yeah. And, and during the pandemic, of course, that wasn't really happening. And, um, it's like, I, 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 like one of my, one of my goals is, is to build that, build it back again at first church oh, yeah. is to have a space where there's like kids running around and it's their space and they're at home. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. well, and we're already seeing it just, just the other, I came into the church in the um, upper cast of the middle school uh, for the for the musical. 
was on break and I heard, I came into the doors near my office and then I'd heard just this like, and it was just this, like heard this mass of feral children just tearing <laughs> from the upper gathering hall through the back of the sanctuary. Nobody was there. So it was fine. And then all the way down around through the parlor and down the like secret back staircase. And, you know, this is like a bunch of kids who have grown up there and know the space and know it all. Yeah, it's, yeah. You have this really beautiful, especially Katie, with when you start kids at the early age that you, your guys are like, they'll know every little back corner. They'll know every little staircase, the bell tower, all the all the details. I still remember so many details of the church I grew up in, where I was from age zero to eighteen. You know, you just get to know a space, and so I think as we're coming back and we have things like the families together program, where we, you know, usually about four or five times a year gather the kids, gather the parents and the kids get to play and sort of know the space. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very sweet, it's a very sweet thing. So let's see. So we had also, if you had any questions for us or we sent you all those other things. So did you, um, want to touch on any of let's the, start with, uh, with, let's start with the UU principles and sources. So, so Katie, is there anything that, that particularly, do you have a favorite principle or source or is there, is there anything that particularly resonates for you? Yeah. Um, so I think that, uh, I think that my favorite principle was the, the fourth principle, um, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I think nice. that's sort of been the, the core of my, um, connection to the church. I also think that it's an interesting principle because it's, um, it's really the only principle as far as I can tell that is in, uh, tension with itself for, in a way, um, Mm. because of course responsibility does limit freedom. And of course any, you know, unharnessed freedom is, you know, including freedom to harm others is, is not, Good. So I, um, I thought that was kind of, uh, you know, an interesting, um, it was all in this one principle that, that you have to be free and responsible. And I think that figuring out sort of where that line is between freedom and, and responsibility, um, is sort of up to, to each of us along with figuring out what our personal truth and, and meaning is. Yeah. I love that too. And that I love both that it's ongoing. So I think of, you know, the you that came early on, you know, hungry, looking for that prayer practice, you know, there's a very different free and responsible truth search for truth and meaning then, than you now, than you in 10 years. And for me, the same thing, you know, it's like this moment of my search is very different and it's not like a linear thing. It's not like a really clean progress of enlightenment. (laughs) It's just like all sorts of curly cues and backsliding and beautiful moments of inspiration. And then, you know, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing. And the responsible piece to me is also, it's almost like responsive, you know, and because it's, Mm it's this feedback loop too, you know, like both limiting freedom and, and, and being clear and accountable, but then also being able to, to grow and, and change. It is, it is a fascinating one. It's, it's, that phrase has an interesting history too, um, because when um, the, uh, 
the principles were first drafted um, when uh, the Unitarian and Universalist denominations merged in 1961. The original phrasing of that was uh, free and disciplined search for truth. Which and, I bet you would like. <laughs> yeah, and then the wording, when when it was redrafted in, I think it was the, the, the early 1980s, It was it, they were rewritten, and the word disciplined disappeared and was replaced by responsible and it and uh, and the word meaning i think was added so so it became the, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning and i and i think about that a lot because well, what what is this what what does this word disciplined imply back in 1961 because to my ear right that sounded a bit sort of authoritarian and like um creedal shall we say right like like there are official teachings and you've got to be disciplined mm. and swallow them you know what mm-hmm. i mean and and yeah. but, but, but but what was interesting was that that the other people in um in our group heard something different that i hadn't heard and and yeah particularly people with with buddhist practice or with other with who who had mm. other spiritual practices in which discipline is an important idea uh, they actually they actually resonated with that and i, I thought that was very interesting but the, yeah, the, the, that's, the replacement... my, that's my experience with the word i have like oh, a right, very yeah. sweet it means I'm taking this seriously. I'm going to think about this every day before I come to get my kids. I'm going to take to the cushion and I'm going to have this spiritual practice on yeah, yeah, yeah. discipline, yeah. which I have a very positive relationship. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm closer to Sam in, in that. Um, yeah. I think it brings to mind more like rote learning and wrapping children's knuckles with rulers and things. Then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then maybe also with with responsibility, you know, maybe one one way of thinking about it, right, is that is that free and responsible are kind of are like balanced with each other. Maybe then you're in a sort of a zero sum game or something like that, where you can you can have more freedom and less responsibility, or more responsibility and less freedom. But maybe there's another way of thinking about it, which is that responsibility is 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 something like accountability. This is a bit, I think, like what Chris was saying about being being responsive, right? Is 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 that um, uh, in my in my freedom in my spiritual search, um, that freedom is in fact enabled and not limited by it being collaborative, right? If I'm if I'm if my freedom is 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 my my spiritual search in community with others who are helping me along and holding my hand as I as I as I make more and more discoveries, um, responsibility is like being 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 part of a community, being being. Um, woven into a community right and 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 community sort of enables us and empowers us and it's, it's into us in some ways a condition of our freedom so i think this this idea of free and responsible search for truth and meaning is actually quite nuanced and quite multi-layered um, yeah so i think about that a lot it reminds me a little bit also of this sort of ongoing um debate i, I don't know uh the hot button issue of free speech versus responsible speech um yeah yeah because Right. I mean, as you were saying, Sam, there's, you know, you don't want to limit freedom, but you don't want it to, you want to be accountable. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to infringe on other people's freedoms uh, or well-being by exercising your own. Yeah. And also, and, and also just, sorry, sorry to natural about this. The la- last thing is another sen- another resonance of responsibility for me is responsibility to myself because, mm. you know, free a free search for truth and meaning if it's authentic, that is to say, if it's really free, it isn't just a whim, right? It's me, not just me coasting on my 
my whims. It's it's actually be trying to be true to myself and responsible to what it is that I'm meant to find, you know. And I think and and uh, maybe 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 that's another another resonance of the word for responsibility. And then, did you have any questions for us? I would love to hear a little bit more about um, both of your personal journeys. Um, first of all, to, to start off with, Sam, I know that you are working in a PhD and mm-hmm. are a teaching fellow, um, but I don't actually know what your PhD is in or um, what you're teaching. I, I'm worried I'm like getting back on the treadmill and I'm like, ah, academics, let's talk know, about this. <laughs> oh, no, it's so good because but- <laughs> it's so specific yeah go i love talking about safe well for me it isn't a treadmill it's like it's like one of one of the things in my life that that does does give my life meaning and i I can hear my fellow graduate students kind of rolling their eyes or being horrified by this because you know there's the 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 academic job market at least in the humanities is so horrible um is that that we're, we're sort of having these these days we have to steel ourselves against it and we have to uh take a very professional emotionally just detached view of it uh to to be to to look after ourselves um but but quite honestly i just um you know one day i'd love to teach again um as and i'd love to get paid to do it but i think that's my my vocation um i absolutely love um you know being in uu community and doing the work that i do for first church and i and i and, and i want that to be a big part of my life forever too but um i think teaching is what i what i most love doing and it's it's what i feel called to do um, and my PhD is is a bit of a weird kind of historical study of this great Irish author Samuel Beckett. Oh, I know um, Samuel Beckett. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. I did a lot of theater in college. Funnily oh, enough, who did you play? Who did you play? <laughs> oh, uh, I I didn't actually. So I was mostly in the MIT Shakespeare Ensemble. Mm. Um, and if you can imagine, like this, that you know, the union of MIT students and Shakespeare nerds, you get like a real weird group of people. I love um, it. I love it. <laughs> but uh, I did once do lighting direction for Waiting for Godot. Cool. Um, cool. I did not much care for Beckett when I went to college. I was, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I figure the further you deviate from Shakespeare, the the further you've strayed from. You know. Well, I love Shakespeare, and my favorite class <laughs> was, was teaching Shakespeare, and I can't wait to, I oh, can't really? wait to do that again one day, either as a TF mm. or as whatever, you know. So. I love you should do a class at the church, man. You should do yeah. an annual Shakespeare deep dive. Anyway, I would well, maybe Casey and I can do that together. Maybe we can, oh, maybe yeah. we can, yeah, maybe we can do it together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, so I've, I, uh, just the last thing to say about it is that I made a, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm telling everybody this because it kind of, it kind of was a bit of an ego boost because, because I feel I, I took a long time out of my program and I, and I, and I, I took a lot of years sort of not making any progress on my PhD. It was, it was just sort of in the background of my life and, and, uh, being a typical sort of, you know, academically minded person, I felt terribly guilty about it for a long time. And I got over that, but I realized the other day when I did a word count that, um, I've written 1.2 million words. I know. Oh right? my gosh. That's, that's, that's your PhD more... is 1.2 million yeah. words long. Yeah. I'm I've doing like lo- the Wiley Coyote, like eyeballs, Bleeding out of my head. <laughs> I know, and I couldn't. I couldn't. I did a double take when I looked at it. I was like, "Uh, whoops!" Because the 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 word limit for a PhD is a hundred thousand words, and I've got one point two million. So you've that's two like, PhDs. I know. <laughs> so, 
So that's so so it was nice in a way because it's like oh you know what I've been beating myself up for years thinking I'm just a really slow writer and that I can't you know and I can't write and it's just and writing is hard any any obviously you know and you guys you guys write as well I mean the, 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 the writing is the hardest thing in the world to do right but uh, actually I I can write. I just haven't got That's anything amazing. out there published with my name on it. editing is the hardest thing in the world. Yes, editing <laughs> is the hardest thing in the world. So I've got to edit. I actually don't think I have written 1.2 million words in my life. I think if you tallied up all the emails and like yeah. everything, yeah. I don't think it would hit 1.2 million. Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. Can you tell Thank me you. more about your PhD? I'm now like super um, intrigued about Beckett and... Uh, yeah, what what you have to, yeah. well, to say about him? The short, the elevator pitch version is that it's I'm telling a a, a pretty cool story which it, which isn't known because I I sort of found it out in the archives um, about Samuel Beckett who uh, was a, a a World War II hero in the French Resistance which which, which is known it's known that he was a he was um, you know a, a, a spy for the Resistance spying on the Nazis in France during World War II. Um, but I found that he was also a humanitarian aid worker in um, in um, internment camps in authoritarian Vichy France under German occupation, and he helps a lot of people. And he never talked about this. He never he never told anyone um, in the way that many people who rescued you know Jews and refugees and people fleeing the Gestapo they often didn't tell their stories after the war because it was it was. Uh, they were often very painful stories to tell, and 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 but but it 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 influenced his writing in a very profound way, and so I'm looking at how his experience of trying to help people who were imprisoned and deported uh, under Nazi occupation, how that went on to influence his writing. Super. That fascinating. is fascinating. Wow. That's why it's a million words long. Yeah, it's a million words. A million, and then two more <laughs> maximum PhDs. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if only I could get some grant funding see, out of those 1.2 million words. <laughs> so, yep. Uh, Thank you, that's Katie. That's, that's, anyway, yeah, that's 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 my other life. That's my I got I got my lovely first church life, and I got my lovely 1.2 million word dissertation writing life. So that is so cool. I would I would love to. Yeah, whenever I next see you, maybe next Sandy Island, I'll corner you and sure. you can tell me more about it. That yeah. sounds amazing. Oh, was, was there a, Chris for, a question for Chris too? I feel like Chris has been um, left out. Yeah, tell me about your PhD, Chris. <laughs> yeah, no. actually, no, it's fascinating because um, both my parents, so I was actually raised by two professors. So oh. my dad was um, a biology professor who did apparently groundbreaking research in cell division way back in the day. So he was 52 when I was born in 1976. So this was a while ago. Uh, and he was teaching at BU. Uh, then he eventually went on to be a minister, be ordained at 62 as a Unitarian Universalist minister, and then served some churches, um, retired from being uh, teaching in the university. And then my mother um, had a PhD, was a communications professor at Bridgewater State College, and she did her PhD in Greece on nonverbal communication. So she went to a place where she didn't speak the language to research nonverbal communication. Which in Greece, kind wow. of fascinating. And she had long, bright red hair at the time. And this is many years ago. And there wasn't a lot of redheaded Greek people and people had all sorts of intense reactions to her red hair. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so she also had a PhD. So when I was little, I sort of assumed everybody had PhDs. <laughs> so I was like, joke, it was like a not running joke. 
in my childhood that I would, you know, it wasn't a question of when it was just, or it wasn't a question of if just a question of when, um, that I would get a PhD, but you know, I, I'm good. Uh, you know, I really love what I do. I love being a minister and there's all sorts of different ways that I can help and serve. And some ministers do go get, um, more degrees. Um, but I don't know, my wife is really hungry to go back and get some back into school and, and get more mm. degrees. I'm, I'm good. Um, so I have, a, I have yeah. a confession. One thing I love to do sometimes when I'm at church is uh, when, when Chris's door is open and he's not in his office, I like to sneak into his office and look at his bookshelves. And he's got, got all these really cool like biographies of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he's got a lot of really cool books in there, which are fun to browse when he's not there. Uh, really <laughs> Feel free to borrow stuff. Yeah, we've, we, uh, we have a lot of books between two, two ministers uh, who used to have a lot more office space and we used to have a lot more bookshelves we have we have but i'm still bringing bringing more in so yeah my office is always open for people to come in and borrow books katie do you have a favorite author oh i mean shakespeare yeah nice uh, <laughs> which shakespeare play do you like the best okay so if i'm allowed to pick uh if, if it's one shakespeare play it's macbeth um, yeah. I think it's just like a perfectly told little ghost story. Um, it's got great characters. It's got great lines. It's like spooky. It's fun. It's great. Yeah. If I'm allowed to pick a series of plays, I would say that my favorite is the minor tetralogy, um, which is Henry the sixth parts one through three and Richard the oh, third, um, okay. which yeah, is not many people sort pick of, that. That's good. There. Well, so part of the problem is that Henry the sixth part one is just not very good. Mm. Um, and I think that that sort of turns people off. Like no one's going to start with Henry the Sixth parts two and three, even though those are fantastic. Um, but, oh, I think they're so great. There's, uh, there's, you know, so many great historical characters. There's amazing villains. Even, um, even some of the like goodies are like really actually pretty nasty pieces of work. Um, mm. There's, uh, there's Queen Margaret who is, an incredible character. She is the only character in Shakespeare who shows up in four different plays. Uh, she shows up in every single play of the minor tetralogy. Mm -hmm. um, Henry the sixth part one ends with Joan of Arc burning on stage. Mm. And Henry the sixth part two begins with her, like still, they, they like comment about how she's like still smoldering in the background. It's wow. just, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, yeah. there's, there's action, there's war, there's romance, there's, heroes and heroines and villains and villainesses and uh yeah. it's it's just a great uh if you ever have quite a lot of time to drop on for shakespeare plays with the caveat that the first one is actually pretty bad <laughs> i highly recommend those ones cool fantastic answer thanks katie yeah i should i should return to those it's a long time since I read the Henry the Sixth plays. Those don't get taught a lot. So I did, when I was teaching Shakespeare way back in the day, I didn't teach those ones. It's a long time since I read them. This was super fascinating. Thank you yeah. so much uh, for coming on. And I'm so excited that you'll, you're will you in the midst of joining the worship committee. So excited to create oh, really? more I didn't stuff know that. with you. And, I yeah, am, just yeah. recently. Just recently. Yay. So this is going to be great. Um, but I'm so glad that you and boy came back in your whole family and uh it was really really great to to talk so thanks for coming up yeah thanks so much katie thank you so much this was a lot of fun <laughs>